this Lawyer Out. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dewora. We're business and trial lawyers with the B-Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're talking with environmental lawyer, Rob Lott, who has been DuPont in court for about 20 years now. Rob took an enormous case dealing with DuPont. Uh, DuPont's polluting the water in West Virginia. He wrote a book about the case, Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont that was published by Simon & Schuster last October. And there's a movie about the case, Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo, Tim Robbins, and Anne Hathaway. A movie and a book published by Simon & Schuster. That's big stuff. Welcome to our podcast, Rob. Thank you for having me. Hey, before we delve into the legal aspects of the case, give us a, a summary of how you found yourself with this case. Well, you know, it was kind of an unusual path. Um, I was working at the law firm of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, where I had been since I graduated law school in 1990. In fact, it'll be 30 years this year that I've been at Taft. Um, I had been there about eight years, um, practicing primarily in um, uh, environmental law, um, representing primarily big companies, uh, our big chemical company clients, and doing a lot of what was at the time Superfund work, uh, cleanup of hazardous waste sites across the country, and working with these big companies to try to figure out who was responsible for what wastes and uh, how to divvy that up, and uh, just got an unusual call one day in the office. Uh, the phone rang, and this gentleman on the other end of the lines started rattling on about cows dying on his property in West Virginia. And I had no idea, you know, why I was getting this call. How did this guy get my number? I was about to hang up until he uh, mentioned that he had been uh, referred to me by my grandmother. Um, so I stopped and listened, and that really started what became now almost a 22-year-long uh, journey through uh, unregulated chemical world. So Mr. Tennant tells you he's got a problem. Tell us about the problem that he was encountering. Yeah, you know, when I, he, he started to explain that he was uh, raising cattle on property outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, and he had been noticing uh, white foaming water coming into a creek that his cattle drank out of. Uh, and this was coming out of a landfill that was right next to his property owned by the DuPont company. Uh, and DuPont happened to be one of the biggest employers in town at the time. Um, and so when he was complaining about this white foam coming out of the landfill, going into the creek, uh, nobody really wanted to, to talk about it uh, because it involved one of the town's biggest employers. And what was happening is his cows were drinking this water and getting sick, very sick. They were developing tumors. Their teeth were turning black. They were wasting away, no matter how much you fed them, and dropping dead. And it wasn't just the cows, it was the deer, it was the fish, it was the birds in the area. And Mr. Tennant himself, the farmer who called me, uh, uh, believed he himself was getting sick. He was having trouble breathing, he was coughing, he would have vapor clouds that would waft over his, his home from this landfill periodically. And he was really concerned not only about what was happening to his property, his animals, but what might be happening to 
to his wife, his kids, himself. Um, so, you know, after listening to this on the phone, um, he, he told me he had lots and lots of videos. If I could, he just come up and show me what he had. Nobody would listen to him. He had gone to the local EPA folks from the state of West Virginia. They didn't want to talk to him. He had called the feds at the U.S. EPA and really didn't get anywhere. He had gone to the company, DuPont, and got what he called the runaround. And none of the local lawyers wanted to talk to him because it involved DuPont. So could he just bring his stuff up and could I just take a look at it? And, you know, uh, not the kind of thing I normally did. I had uh, never worked with cows or farmers before. But, you know, hearing that this was somebody uh, that my grandmother had referred you know, I said, sure, you know, bring, bring whatever you have, come on up, we'll take a look at it. Um, you know, this was, uh, when I heard it was Parkersburg, this was someplace I kind of considered hometown. You know, my dad was in the Air Force, so as a kid, we moved around a lot, but always came back to Parkersburg, my mom's hometown. We went there for holidays, family events. So, you know, that just so happened he, Mr. Tennant, when he was, he was complaining to his neighbor one day across the fence and the neighbor, Mrs. Graham had just been on the phone with my grandmother who was bragging about her son being a fancy environment lawyer up in Cincinnati. So uh, that's how it happened. Um, and so he came up to our offices in the fall of 1998, armed with videotapes and photographs and it's pretty compelling stuff. And we started looking at it. When I was uh, watching the movie Dark Waters, they uh, made Mr. Tennant out to be very angry in all of the scenes. What was he like? And my understanding from the movie was he passed away uh, also. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, they did actually a fantastic job um, in, in capturing Mr. Tennant's personality um, and his, his family, the entire community there. Um, the folks that put that movie together at Participant, in, you know, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Todd Haynes, the director, really did a fantastic job. And one of the reasons, you know, I agreed uh, to go forward with this and, and, and let them bring the story out is they were incredibly passionate and committed to um, doing the story and bringing it out in a way that was as accurate and as faithful to the real people and the real community and the real story as possible. An example of that was Mr. Tennant. You know, the actor, uh, Bill Camp, who played Mr. Tennant, did a fantastic job. Luckily, we had hours and hours of videotaped depositions of Mr. Tennant that the actor was able to watch, even though Mr. Tennant, unfortunately, had passed away years ago. Um, the actor was able to watch these videos to see how he talked. Um, he was able to meet with Mr. Tennant's brother, who's still living, and his wife and, and the daughters, and really you know, get to understand uh, Mr. Tennant's personality. I spent a lot of time with the folks as well. Um, and uh, you know, Mr. Tennant was a very, uh, very determined, uh, obstinate person. Um, and I, you know, I think they really did a great job with capturing his personality and the way he talked and his mannerisms and even the way he dressed. In fact, um, there was a day where the, um, uh, when they were filming one of the scenes and Mr. Tennant's brother, Jim and his wife came up to be extras in a scene in a restaurant and they met the actor who was playing him and they actually did a double take, you know, that he, he was so, he looked so much like him. He talked so much like Mr. Tennant 
um, they were they were really impressed, and the whole family was was very happy with the way um, their father was represented in the movie, and you know the fact that his story finally got to come out. The way that the townspeople and the church people treated that uh, was that accurate. Also, uh, the, the animosity with the um, uh, with the townspeople and the church people was that also accurate. Unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, that was a real uh, difficult dynamic, you know, that these folks um, had to deal with for many years. You know, you were bringing uh, a claim against one of the town's biggest employers. And a lot of folks in that community either worked for the company, their relatives worked for the company, they're, they're, they knew people that worked there, that their, their livelihood was somehow tied to that company. And, you know, people that were standing up and uh, fighting back against the company or saying bad things about it, um, you know, really were viewed as the enemies. Uh, even the local media, you know, was, was running editorials um, on the local paper and on the television station, really blasting anybody that was speaking out and suggesting anything um, negative about the company. And that went on for many years. Um, and unfortunately, even continues to some degree to this day. Rob, how did Mark Ruffalo and the other folks in Hollywood stumble across your story? You know, it, um, it took many, many years, you know, to, of trying to get this information out to the public about the chemical that we were dealing with called PFOA which is part of this bigger class of chemicals that you now may be hearing referred to as forever chemicals. PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, which is quite a mouthful. Um, but, uh, you know, for 20 years, I was doing everything I could to try to get information out to the regulators, to the scientific community, to the public about what this stuff was. And the fact that it wasn't just something contaminating one farmer's property in West Virginia or even one community out there, but was a problem that was really a nationwide contamination problem and frankly, a worldwide contamination problem. And for, for years and years, I was trying to do what I could through the legal system, through the court system, through sending filings to the regulators, sending letters, doing everything I could as a lawyer. And that story just frankly wasn't getting out. And then one day I was approached by a journalist who was working on a, um, a story for the New York Times Magazine, Nathaniel Rich. And he wanted to do really sort of a comprehensive overview of this whole story. And um, I was a little um, suspicious at the time. I wasn't sure, you know, what, 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 was really, what, what he was really doing, what the angle would be. But, um, you know, I agreed to participate on the hope that this would help get that story out. And in January 2016, Nathaniel Rich, his story was actually on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. And it provided sort of the history of this whole issue that started with Mr. Tennant and had become um, something that really was a nationwide contamination problem. And that article really generated a lot of interest. Um, I, was, I was amazed at how many people um, responded to that, emailed, were, were really um, surprised by it. One of those individuals was Mark Ruffalo. I got a call from Mr. Ruffalo saying that he had read this and he considered himself, you know, really active in the environmental arena. He had been working on water issues for years. 
and he was just really floored that something like this could be happening in the United States, um, contamination on such a really massive scale, and that he had never heard of it. And how is it nobody had heard of this story? And, you know, he really was um, in, intrigued by it. He really wanted to see if there was a way we could bring this story out to a wider audience and really present it in a way that people would understand not only, you know, what this stuff was, uh, but that it was a bigger problem than most people realized. It was a national, if not worldwide problem, and really show how it impacted not just, you know, from a scientific and legal standpoint, but how the real people involved were impacted. So that's how the movie developed. He reached out to me in 2016. And at that point, we had just been uh, taking, some, some of these issues were finally going to trial in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we were presenting this data and all of it was finally being shown to juries. Juries were coming back with verdicts against DuPont saying they had caused people's cancer. Yet nobody was paying any attention to this. Uh, most people still didn't realize this was a problem that impacted them. So I really thought, you know what, if we could get the story out in a broader way, and if, if the folks at Participant Media that Mark Ruffalo was working with, they were able to do it, you know, that would be something I think would be a great thing to do. Were you pleased with how Mark portrayed you and the uh, difficulties you had, especially of interest to Jack and me, were your, the dynamics of the partnership at Taft? And how, you know, if you had much pushback uh, taking a contingency case like this? Yeah, I think they really did a terrific job. You know, it, it's difficult to take something that happened over a 20-year time span that's incredibly complicated, not only from a scientific standpoint, from, but also from a legal standpoint, and, and then try to also explain the dynamics of what's going on within a big law firm and within our family and within the tenant family and within the community and do all of that in the space of about two hours. So they, I think they did a tremendous job in capturing that. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to consult with them and to work with them. A lot of the film, uh, if not almost all of it, was filmed in Cincinnati in the surrounding area and a lot of it in our offices. So I was able to be there during the filming. I was able to help them. Uh, I, you know, I worked really closely with Mr. Ruffalo and the director. In fact, you know, I was helping tell them where do people sit during a deposition? You know, how are, how are you handing, how do you hand people the exhibits? How do people respond? What are the other lawyers doing when you're asking a question? So, um, you know, things that as lawyers, we may all take for granted. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, particularly as lawyers, when we're watching movies, we say, ah, oh, that's not the way it happens. So, I, you know, I was trying my best to make sure we were as accurate as we could be with how some of these um, things are handled legally as well. And they did a great job on it. I was watching the, uh, the movie with my son, and there was the scene when you were taking the deposition of uh, the representative uh, from DuPont, and you were handing him uh, documents, and my son's like, wow, that's good. Is that the way it really happens? I said, yeah, when you've got good facts and good documents, you can uh, make your point uh, to these people. I thought it was a wonderful scene. Can you talk a little bit more, though, about the dynamics of the law firm? Uh, some of our listeners may not know, but primarily larger law firms and have big corporate clients bill on an hourly basis. That, that billing runs the firm, pays the rent, pays the salaries. You took this case on a contingency, so if you didn't win, you would have been out. 
uh, any compensation. So how did that play with your partners? You know, exactly. And in fact, that's something I try to really explore in more detail in the book, Exposure. Um, you know, obviously, there just wasn't as much time in the movie to get into a lot of that. You see, you see some of that dynamic there. But, you know, my firm, um, Taft, uh, historically, you know, represented primarily bigger companies, um, folks that paid by the hour. You know, if when you provide your legal services, at the end of the month, you would send out a bill. And your client would then pay that bill and you would bill by the hour and partners, you know, a lot of their compensation, for example, is would be determined on how many clients you had and how, how not only how many bills you sent out, but how many of those bills were paid. Um, and when Mr. Tenet came to us in 1998, um, you know, I was fortunate at the time that the head of our environmental group, Tom Turk happened to be in the office and was able to sit in and look at the videotapes, look at the evidence Mr. Tennant had brought, hear the passion, you know, about uh, that Mr. Tennant was displaying, that something really bad was happening there. And that, uh, it, it, was, it was really important to have him there because he was very much in support of, this is something we can help this individual on. And we had you know, the head of my environmental group essentially agreeing that this is something we would take on. And that was important because it was clear this gentleman could not pay our hourly rates. And so we agreed to do something we had not done up to that point, which was take a case on a contingency fee where we would not get paid unless the client actually recovered something. You know, and when we sat, when we were first looking at this case, um, you know, we thought, I very naively thought this was something I could really get, I could probably get resolved pretty quickly. This is what I did all the time. I helped our clients get permits for landfills, get permits for air emissions and discharges. I assumed this was a regulated landfill. This had a permit from the state of West Virginia. We could simply go look at the permit and there would be a list of regulated hazardous materials with limits of how much they could discharge. Probably something was being emitted or above the limits. Um, and we thought we could get to that answer pretty quickly. So we agreed to take it on a contingency fee basis. Um, yeah, it didn't work out that way, that this was a quick, easy answer. We had no idea at the time that we would be dealing with a, uh, a contamination caused by completely unregulated material. Uh, that would take us many, many years. Um, but we were able to at least get that case resolved for Mr. Tennant. Uh, and get that resolved. But then we then had to take on the idea of once we realized this was contamination of the entire community, and we found out it was in their drinking water, uh, the firm had to make the decision whether or not we would take on a class action against a major chemical company. Not only that, and that was pretty unusual for us since we were representing a lot of big companies, but that we would do that on a contingency and, you know, for, for law firms to take on a class action against a major company on a contingency fee, that's a huge risk. You know, we didn't, this was an unregulated chemical. We didn't know, you know, how, how likely it would be that we could actually prevail. And it would be expensive. We'd have to bring in all kinds of scientific experts. And those experts, they get paid by the hour. They don't operate on contingency. <laughs> so the law firm is fronting all of those expenses. And what happened is, you know, it became extremely expensive um, as we're pursuing this. And even after we were able to resolve that class case, 
uh, in 2004, we, we then set up this, this sort of second phase of the case where we had a scientific panel that was going to evaluate all the evidence. Um, you know, but in the, even though that was, that was um, outside of the legal case, that was through a settlement, we were still incurring a lot of costs, you know, working with experts who were trying to help us understand what these scientists were doing and incurring a lot of expense. And that was happening uh, during the 2008 to 2011 timeframe when the economy was imploding and law firms are laying people off and cutting expenses. And here we are incurring more and more and more expense. And as you see in the film and I talk about in the book, you know, that created a lot of additional pressure at the time, you know, to be, to be the one that is co costing a lot of money and your firm is generating more and more and more expense and the, the odds of you ever getting paid uh, are not getting any better <laughs> as time goes on. So, it, you know, you see that in the film, that that generated a lot of additional stresses. Um, you know, when you're in a firm that operates on how much money, frankly, are, you know, are your billing clients bringing in on an annual basis? Um, and what I was doing, you know, was sort of unusual. It really didn't fit that pattern. You know, how do you handle that? How do you deal with somebody who isn't bringing in uh, those funds during the year? I want to talk about the stress that you referred to. But before we get to that, I want to talk about something that I don't think was as clear in the movie as it was in that New York Times article, New York Times Magazine article, the idea of some chemicals are regulated, some are not. And I would imagine that most people think the EPA knows about every chemical known to man and has some rules and regulations for every chemical. That's not how it works, is it? No, you know, most of us, I think, would assume when we turn our tap on in the kitchen, you know, this is the United States, clearly, you know, where we have safe water and that somebody uh, is looking at our water and checking it and making sure there's nothing bad in it. After all, we have an EPA and we have all these federal agencies and state agencies that are, that are charged to do that for us. Um, unfortunately, what I kind of learned the hard way through this case is there's a relatively small percentage of the chemicals that are out there and that can get into our water that, first of all, people even know that they're there, and an even smaller group that's actually thoroughly investigated, and then an even smaller group that is investigated and actually regulated with standards and limits. Um, and, you know, this, this particular case kind of became a, a really good example of uh, some of the problems we have in the U.S. and the way we regulate chemicals. You know, this particular chemical that we were dealing with called PFOA, that was, um, you know, 7,000 tons of PFOA-soaked sludges were in the landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property causing the foam. Um, and when we started digging into it, when I started getting into the internal files from DuPont, what we saw was, you know, this was a chemical that had been invented right after World War II, had not been on the planet prior to World War II, invented by 3M, um, and was starting to, you know, they started selling it to DuPont as early as 1951 in massive quantities, and DuPont was using it to make Teflon at their plant in West Virginia along the Ohio River outside Parkersburg. 
That's decades before the U.S. EPA even came into existence. EPA didn't come into existence until 1970. And some of the first federal laws regulating new chemicals coming out into the market didn't come out until 1976. Well, by, by the time that law came out in 76, this chemical had already been in use for decades. And under that law called the Toxic Substances Control Act, um, it, it really focused on new chemicals coming out after 1976 and required companies to really do a lot of testing and studying before these chemicals could be approved. Well, for the existing chemicals that were already out there, things like PFOA, really, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of simplifying here, but the, the law essentially simply said to the companies that were making or using those existing chemicals, it was up to them to alert the US EPA if they, the companies making and using the chemicals, acquired information suggesting they would present a substantial risk of harm to human health or the environment. So really, it, the burden was on the companies to tell the EPA if there was something, it was some problem about any of those existing chemicals. Otherwise, the EPA would have no reason to ever look or even be aware of those chemicals. And what I saw with, with the PFOA example was despite decades of internal studies by the companies that were making and using this chemical, showing they were incredibly toxic, they caused cancer in laboratory animals, there were all kinds of issues that were being seen in the workers, the humans being exposed to these. The company repeatedly sat down with their lawyers, looked at it, and made the decision, we don't think it presents a substantial risk we're not going to alert the EPA. So there was this problem that despite all of this internal evidence, it was up to the company to disclose it, and they hadn't. And so when I finally gave that information to the EPA in 2001, I started sending them all these internal studies, the EPA eventually sued DuPont in 2004 saying, you should have given us this information. This did present a substantial risk. If you had told us about it decades ago, we might have begun to be able to regulate it. And that, this, whole, this whole story was really used as a classic example of why that law needed to be changed. In 2016, there were some changes made to the Toxic Substances Control Act to try to beef that up, to try to require a little more testing to be done. And unfortunately, the, the jury is still out, so to speak, on whether that's really been effective and whether it's really changed anything. Let's be real clear. That New York Times Magazine article pointed out, correct me if I'm wrong, a number of specific studies with specific findings that DuPont did not make public. Am I right? That's absolutely correct. See, that's the scary part. It's the fox guarding the hen house, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. You know, it was really up to the companies to look at their own studies and then actually then report on themselves. Um, you know, they, they, they were doing studies that were showing uh, severe toxic effects um, in the laboratory animals, multiple species, rats, guinea pigs, rabbits, monkeys, um, and uh, their own scientists uh, looking at some of these rodent studies and concluding that the chemical was a confirmed animal carcinogen, possible human carcinogen, and then finding it in the drinking water. And then even though it wasn't regulated, the, the DuPont scientists, who were some of the best scientists in the world, you know, looked at this data, realized it's in drinking water in this area, 
And they themselves set their own safety guideline for the chemical in the drinking water. And then they found it at five to six times higher than that in the community water. And still, the, the business folks decided, we don't think that's a risk. We're not going to alert the EPA. And frankly, that's how they ended up getting sued years later. But unfortunately, in the meantime, um, that resulted in decades of exposure and people drinking this and the chemicals spreading all over the planet. Did uh, 3M have uh, suffer any ramifications from this? You said that 3M developed this uh, this uh, chemical. Uh, any lawsuits with 3M? Any government suits? Yeah, in fact, um, when some of this finally started um, sort of trickling out very quietly to EPA, in fact, there was even a whistleblower scientist within 3M that had... Um, started sending some of this information about these chemicals to EPA, 3M immediately, um, in, you know, knowing that regulation might be coming, decided to pull these chemicals off the market and stop making them in the year 2000. And DuPont, unfortunately, saw that as a market opportunity and then jumped in and started making PFOA themselves from that point forward. And that's how all this information finally started coming out. But in the years since then, um, after all of this finally started trickling out this information about contamination in West Virginia, um, that started hitting the news. In Minnesota, where 3M was located and had been making these chemicals for decades, the Minnesota EPA said, oh, wait a minute, maybe this stuff's out here too in the water. And they started sampling. And sure enough, they found these chemicals in the drinking water all around the Twin Cities area back in 2005. Um, there were lawsuits then. The state actually sued 3M. Uh, that resulted just recently in an $850 million settlement with 3M for contamination of virtually the entire state of Minnesota and the Mississippi River. And in the last couple of years, particularly since the New York Times article came out and people started finally becoming aware of this, these chemicals have popped up in drinking water all over the country, all over the planet. Lawsuits have been brought. Um, not just against DuPont, but also now against 3M. Particularly, these chemicals, PFOA was used in a lot. There's been a lot of publicity about DuPont's use of that chemical in making Teflon. Well, 3M used a very similar chemical called PFOS in related chemicals like and related products like Scotchgard and in making firefighting foams. And unfortunately, PFOA and PFOS have been used in, for decades in firefighting foams. And those have been sprayed out at military bases for training exercises in airports all across the country. And sampling has just begun outside these bases and these chemicals are being found in water all over the country. So there have been lots of lawsuits now brought by states, by water providers, by communities against 3M, DuPont, and, and a, lot of, a lot of entities trying to um, make sure that the people who are really responsible for that contamination are paying for it, not the taxpayers. I think for the benefit of our listeners, I think the only way to give listeners, that is the non-lawyers, a sense of the enormity of what you did is to compare it to trying to climb Mount Everest. I mean, it's just... I, John and I can appreciate it. It's probably hard for the average individual. With that in mind, do you feel comfortable talking to us 
about the kind of stress the lawsuit meant for you and just how it affected your life. Sure. You know, you see some of that um, depicted in the film. Um, you know, unfortunately, there were some personal uh, health impacts to me. And, um, um, you know, you see the impacts to, to the people that were there in West Virginia. Um, you know, the community that was uh, exposed to this. Um, you know, and unfortunately, there were tr uh, serious, massive health impacts to the people who were exposed in the community with cancers and other diseases linked to this. Um, but, you know, this is, there was a, there was an incredible amount of stress. Um, you know, this was something that was uh, really, there, there wasn't a roadmap for us really to follow in how we handled this for our clients, you know, first through with Mr. Tennant and then with taking on the class action for the whole community, you know, this how do you, how do you bring claims um, for an unregulated chemical where there are no standards set by any government agencies? So you're technically not violating, you know, any of those regs or regulations, um, you know, and there's incredible, not only the stress of um, how do you make sure that you're not, um, you know, in, imposing just massive costs and expenses and strains on your law firm and your partners, uh, but um, you've got real people in those communities that are depending on you that are drinking this stuff every day. You know, this chemical we, we found out was in the drinking water of some 70,000 people, you know, along the Ohio River and had been there for decades. And the company was refusing to put in water filters, you know, to, which is the most minimum thing you could do, at least stop the ongoing exposure. You know, so we, we knew... You know, it weighed on me every day, knowing that, um, uh, you know, first, of course, that Mr. Tennant was, was, you know, his animals were dropping dead as we tried to figure out what was going on. He was getting sick. His family was getting sick. And then as we moved on to, to try to represent the community, you know, we had people calling that were developing cancers that were dying as we tried to get this push through the legal system. Um, and as, you know, as, as lawyers out there can appreciate, uh, it's never quick <laughs> to push it through the legal system. Um, so, you know, particularly as it drags on and on for years and um, it, when we got to the phase of then having these independent scientists, you know, work on this project where they took data from the entire community, 69,000 people came forward, gave their blood, gave medical information. And we promised them these scientists would get to the bottom of it and confirm what these health effects were, you know, that they were, uh, that they could be exposed to from drinking this chemical, having to wait. <laughs> you know, we didn't know how long this would take. Ended up taking almost seven years. You know, and again, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that was happening while the economy was imploding, you know, and people were getting sick every day. Um, so, you know, you see some of that in the film, you know, where I'm sitting in my office listening and having to take these phone calls from people or meeting with people as, as this stretches on and the exposure continues. And, you know, it's incredibly frustrating to know you've got this information. There's a massive public health threat. This chemical's in people's water. It's getting into their blood. Babies are being born with it. And you can't get people to pay attention. You can't get people to, to look at it. So, you know, it, it, it's almost like I became Mr. Tenet in that sense. You know, I'm desperately trying to, to say, 
look, look at this information. I'm sending letters to the EPA. I'm trying everything I can. Um, and it's an incredible amount of um, um, stress, frankly, uh, to do that. And, you know, that's a process that, that dragged on 20 years. Rob, there was a scene in the movie when you were in your car in the parking garage, reluctant to turn the key. Uh, uh, how real was that? Uh, how much danger did you uh, uh, face or fear? Yeah, you know, a lot of folks have asked me about that since the film came out. Um, you know, spoiler alert, I did not blow up uh, in, the, in the car. But, um, you know, that was actually based on an actual event um, you know, that I had relayed to, to Mark and the folks that were working on the film. Um, it was the day that I had taken the deposition of DuPont's CEO, uh, Chad Holliday. Um, the night before, um, when I flew into Wilmington, Delaware, uh, to, to, to take the deposition the next morning, I was actually staying at the DuPont Hotel in Wilmington, and I had all my boxes there. I called my parents that night, and um, my dad had made a comment to me, you know, where are you staying, and you're, you're where? Who <laughs> else knows you're there? And, uh, you know, who else has all of these documents, and who else understands what's going on here? So, so in other words, if you, just, if, if you weren't around, all of this would just go away. And so I kind of had brushed that off the night before, but after the deposition, um, and you see in the film, and I talk about this in the book, you know, one of my main objectives in that deposition was really, I wasn't so interested in what he knew, what, what the CEO knew. I wanted to make sure he knew what I knew by the time we were done with that deposition. He had been standing up in, in front of shareholder meetings. He had been propped up in, in front of the public to make these statements that there was no information known about health effects. And my concern was he hadn't been shown any of it. He had been shielded from it. So I used that deposition to make sure he saw all of their internal documents. So at the end of that deposition, he could never stand up and say those things again. Um, so, but I also got the sense by the time we were done that the DuPont folks were not probably very happy with me for having done that. And I was walking back to the parking garage um, and I do remember being basically the only car left and having that thought go through my head as I turned the key. So they did, um, they did make that into a scene in the film, and that was based on, on real events. It seemed to me, too, from the, um, from the film that some of your clients were facing uh, uh, dangerous uh, uh, situations where they were in fear of uh, you know, their safety. Was that accurate? Uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, Mr. Kiger, for example, you see in the film um, is the, the house next door that his father owned, you know, mysteriously caught fire uh, one night. You know, that was a real event, um, you know, and people thinking that their phones were being tapped or believing that they were being followed or, you know, that, that people were getting into their house. I mean, these, these were real, real fears that these folks had. Um, you know, and they were being met with open hostility when they would go to the supermarket or go to church. Um, you know, so they, they, unfortunately, there was some real tension that the folks there in that community who were daring to stand up and speak out were having to, to deal with on a daily basis. And it only got worse, you know, as the litigation intensified um, and, uh, you know, as, as the facts started coming out, um, it actually got worse there locally. I'm curious, um, 
about part of the class action, and I don't want to get too technical, but two questions. One, I had never heard of a medical monitoring claim. And the second thing is, it's not clear how you actually arranged for people to be monitored. Was that, was that part of the settlement? And, you know, how did you induce 69,000 people? I know there was a medical payment, but how did you make the uh, testing contingent on getting paid? Yeah, um, you know, it was right about, it was, it was only right before, really, that this issue started bubbling up and we found out about PFOA being in the drinking water of this community that I happened to stumble upon this, this recent decision by the West Virginia Supreme Court that was recognizing a, a new type of tort claim, a new, a new type of legal claim that you could bring in West Virginia courts. You know, traditionally, the rule had sort of been, and I'm kind of oversimplifying here, that you really couldn't sue somebody uh, unless you had been made physically sick or you had an, you know, an, a, an, a clear injury that some doctor diagnosed, you know, a broken leg or you have cancer. Um, you know, the idea that you might be able to sue before you got physically sick was really not, not accepted. Well, the West Virginia court had issued a decision in 1999 that said, Essentially, if you know you've been exposed to a toxic chemical that increases your risk of getting sick, and a medical doctor would say you're at risk of being made sick, and there are tests we can do, but you have a right to get the testing before you're made sick, called medical monitoring. Um, so that's really the law that we kind of hinged our class action lawsuit on. Uh, and really nobody had tried that because uh, it was a relatively new law at the time and nobody had really tried to do it for a class. Um, so we were fortunate enough to be able to, to use that, um, uh, particularly when we had this unregulated material. We were able to focus on what DuPont's own scientists were saying about the risks. DuPont's own scientists were saying drinking this you know, above a certain level could present a risk. So that's what we based the, the case on. And when we were able to settle it, um, one of the things we did is DuPont, under the settlement, had agreed to, to provide a big pot of money to the class, $70 million. Well, as the plaintiff's lawyers, the people representing the class members, we had to go into court and explain how we would distribute that $70 million to the class. And we would have to get the class to agree on how we would do that. And what we proposed to do was to use that money to pay people to come in and provide blood samples and to provide medical information. In exchange, they would get a payment. And the idea was, right now, DuPont's saying that there's not enough evidence to know what this will do to you. If we can get this information, the blood data and the medical information from all of you, we may be able to answer that question for you. So we proposed that people would get, um, would, would get their money, would get a check if they came in and provided blood, if they provided medical information. But it was up to the class to agree that that's the way they wanted to do it and the court to approve it. And uh, we presented that, we sent out notice to everybody, this is what we're planning on doing, and it was approved. The class approved it, the court approved it, and um, we went ahead and we actually ended up getting 69,000 people 
within that class that we estimated to be 70,000. So it was almost everybody um, participated and gave blood and gave medical information. And in the, in the long run, it ended up being incredibly successful because by having that many people participate, we were able to get a big enough sample size to finally get sufficient data to confirm everything we'd been seeing in those internal files that DuPont had been disputing. You know, that the chemical could cause cancer to humans who are exposed and could cause disease. Um, so really, nobody had done that before, so we weren't quite sure, you know, how it would work, um, but it ended up really um, being quite successful, and regulators and scientists all over the planet now are relying on that data from that community. And that paved the way for the individual lawsuits, correct? Correct. Because the way we set up the settlement, we, we essentially told everyone, let's, let's, um, let's set up this independent panel of scientists who will resolve this question of, can this chemical cause these diseases at the level you're drinking it in the drinking water, at that dose level? Let's let these scientists resolve that issue and confirm that independently. All of your claims for injury or damages, they'll all be put on hold and preserved until that science panel finishes their work. And if they come out and say there's no connection with any disease, all of those claims would go away. They'd be dismissed. But if the panel came back and said there were confirmed connections with disease, then you could go forward with your claims for damages. All those claims that have been preserved, you'd be able to move forward and bring them for damage. And that's what happened. When the science panel confirmed links with six diseases, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. Everybody in that community was told, if you have one of those six diseases, you're now entitled to go forward and bring claims for damages against DuPont. And DuPont cannot dispute that, that the chemical in your water at that level could cause those diseases. General causation for us lawyers would be completely resolved. They couldn't dispute that part anymore. We had about 3,500 people in the class of 70,000 that not only had the disease, but also uh, wanted to go forward and bring claims. And so those eventually... Um, were filed. They all got consolidated, pulled together in one proceeding in federal court in Columbus, Ohio. And those cases finally started going to trial in 2015. Are you trying every individual case for damages or is there a different way of, another way of trying to parcel out damages sort of on a collective basis? Well, you know, the, um, once the links were found, and individuals were told, you know, if you're in this class, you have a right to move forward with damages. Those are all, at that point, individual cases. So all of those 3,500 cases, for example, were all individual. But there was a procedure in the legal world for consolidating all of those individual common claims like that through something called multi-district litigation, where cases that are in a bunch of different districts can be brought before one judge in attempts to try to resolve common issues in hopes of helping resolve all of them. And that's what we did here. We had those 3,500 individual cases 
all consolidated before a federal court in Columbus, Ohio, who attempted then to set up a process where we could try to try to try to do try to resolve these cases in a way that might help resolve all of them. So we started picking sample cases to take the trial in hopes that those sample cases would help us resolve all of them. And those are the, those sample cases we call bellwethers. They started going to trial in 2015, and we won all three of the cases that went to trial. And in fact, the verdicts kept getting bigger. And in, in the last two trials, the jury even gave punitive damages, saying the company had acted consciously, I mean, with conscious disregard of the risks. And so it was in the middle of the fourth um, bellwether trial that we were able to reach a global settlement with DuPont for all 3,500 cases for about 670 million. That was in 2017. Now, unfortunately, you know, since the medical testing is still going on in the community, and one of the things I forgot to mention is part of the settlement was not just that the people who had the disease could go forward with claims, but everybody in that community, the 70,000 people, Anybody that was exposed that didn't yet have a disease, they were entitled to get free medical monitoring to, to detect the, the early onset of the disease. And we've got thousands of people now that are getting testing paid for by DuPont. DuPont has to pay for that under our settlement. But what's happening is additional people are getting diagnosed with these diseases since the settlement in 2017. For example, we've got about 50 to 60 more people diagnosed with cancer since the settlement in 2017. DuPont is now refusing to resolve those and insisting that those all go to trial. And the first couple went to trial here just a month or so ago, $50 million verdict against DuPont, yet they are vowing to continue to fight these cases. So those are still pending. Good for you. You have some of those cases, are you still involved with them? Yeah, I am still uh, what they call co-lead counsel for all of the uh, cases pending against DuPont in that proceeding. So we're still pursuing those. Ultimately, and I know you didn't do this for the money, but it was a contingency fee arrangement with your clients. Uh, ultimately, did the firm benefit uh, from, the, uh, from this case and from the 20 years you've spent on it? At, at the end, uh, the you know, when we when we were able to settle the class action back in 2004, uh, the court did approve fees to the attorneys, you know, based on the rules that apply for, for how attorneys get paid from class actions. And all that, you know, had to be done through the court, and that was done. And then finally, after this settlement in 2017, the global settlement, um, you know, that, that allowed for not only everybody to get to all the injured people to get paid, but also the firms to recover fees as well. Um, but that was a heck of a long process. What other uh, attorneys were involved with uh, the plaintiffs on that side? Were any of the big tort lawyers? I know there's some famous lawyers in Cincinnati that, uh, that have had cases against big corporations. Uh, the lawyers in the film, I missed their names. Who else were helping you? Well, you know, <laughs> For the first 15 or so years of this process, it really was, really was our firm uh, working with um, a couple of the firms in West Virginia that have been with us since day one. Uh, we're kind of doing it on our own. Um, and it was after the links came out with disease 
after that was confirmed and people had the right to move forward with claims that we saw uh, additional firms uh, come forward and start wanting to represent people. Um, you know, when we finally consolidated these cases, you know, other firms started filing cases for people, um, you know, that had never been involved in any of this before. Um, but when we started then consolidating all those cases in court, we reached out and teamed up with firms um, and were able to, to help bring in firms that had incredible experience in um, mass tort trials, um, some, of the best, some of the best folks in the country um, that helped then lead those trials for us as well and did a tremendous job. So I just uh, read, Rob, in the Columbus Dispatch that the White House is moving to reduce restrictions on PFOAs. What's your reaction to that? You know, unfortunately, it's part of this continuing problem that um, you know, I've been working on for, for two decades now, uh, trying to get information out about these chemicals, trying to get them comprehensively addressed on the regulatory side, the legislative side, you know, as the hazardous materials that they are. Um, and unfortunately, this has been a, getting these regulated and getting these things handled appropriately under our laws has been a problem that's transcended uh, the political world, in my view. Um, I think it goes beyond political parties. This is something that has happened through multiple administrations, um, you know, through the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration. I mean, these are systemic problems with the way we regulate chemicals and the way we set regulations, and the way science um, is handled. Um, you know, it's, it's great that we're finally seeing the discussions, though, occurring for the first time uh, at the federal level, uh, that um, recognizing the need that we, we, we have to start addressing these chemicals in some comprehensive way. Um, yeah, that's something that hadn't been discussed prior to the last couple of years. Um, but because it's taking so long to move this through the regulatory process at the federal level. What we're seeing happen is states are jumping in and moving forward and taking action on their own to try to address this. States are setting their own regulations. States are moving forward with testing. Ohio, for example, is uh, moving forward with a program to, to comprehensively test for PFAS in water. So, um, you know, it's, that's one of the reasons I was, um, you know, as, as supportive as I was of having this film come out, Dark Waters, having the documentary, The Devil We Know, in the book, and any, anything I can to help get information out to the public to help people realize we need to be having this discussion. This, needs, this is an issue that needs to be addressed in a comprehensive way. It's taking a long time, but I think there's progress being made you know, the fact that these discussions are even happening and that these regulations are even being proposed is tremendous progress. Uh, it's just very difficult to get it moved across the finish line. And unfortunately, you know, as a lawyer, um, I'll be the first one to tell you, people shouldn't have to be hiring lawyers to go into court to get their water cleaned up, to get medical testing like this, to get regulations set. But, you know, the only relief, the only way people have been able to get relief in this situation, unfortunately, to date has been through the court system, going through the legal process. And, you know, at least we're fortunate enough to have the legal system that we do 
that people can get relief this way. We can go into court and we can get clean water, medical testing, um, you know, appropriate damage compensation while this regulatory process continues to drag on for who knows how long. Rob, you um, came across in the movie as, uh, as a very concerned person and modest person, but I have to tell you, just from watching the movie and talking to you and reading about this matter, uh, you're a hero to your clients and you're a hero to the community. And, uh, I'm going to have all of my students that uh, I teach at Cap Law uh, listen to our podcast because uh, I'm proud to have you as a part of our profession. I'm glad you're a lawyer. And I'm uh, so happy that you took some time today to talk to Jack and me. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And I hope, you know, when people see the movie and the film and the, the documentary and the book and all that, they, they come away inspired to know, you know, one person can make a huge change. Somebody, I'm hoping they'll look at Mr. Tennant, you know, Mr. Kiger. I mean, those are the real heroes there. Those people that stood up took on a big company, you know, took on their own community, being very upset with them. But at the end, you know, we all benefited from that. And hopefully people are inspired to know that they too can do the same thing. Rob, I want you to know that both John and I are personally in awe of what you've done. We, we commend you. So thank you so much. I appreciate well, it. You're welcome. What you did was, it, it's still almost incomprehensible to me, the mountain that you climbed. I want to thank you for being with us. Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with another important subject that concerns the law. Until then, remember to lawyer up so long.